Hello, and welcome to another Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this on Monday, May 22, 2023. And this episode is a continuation of the previous podcast we did on this topic, which was podcast number 48. Since then, we've also done a short cast, number 49, on the Believer's Crowns, but this is continuing podcast number 48. And we'll link to that in the description below. So if you haven't listened to that one, I would encourage you maybe to do that first. So you'll have a much better idea of what we're talking about in this program. And what we are covering in this podcast is Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And the statement there that the Antichrist will intend to change the times and the law. You know, as the believers in Christ, we should understand the times in which we live. And to do that, we need to understand the significance of that statement and tie it together with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which tells us that before the Lord returns, mankind as a whole is going to fall into apostasy against God. Some uh, Bible teachers like to say that refers to the church. It doesn't because it's dealing with the Antichrist in that chapter. So it's talking about the world as a whole. That verse is telling us that before the day of the Lord begins, there is going to be a great apostasy against God by mankind as a whole. And as we indicated in the previous podcast on this topic, that apostasy is already taking place today. It's beginning to take place and the way is being prepared for the coming of the Antichrist by what verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us is the mystery of lawlessness. That mystery of lawlessness, according to that verse, is already working in the world today to urge man onto apostasy against God's basic law so that mankind as a whole rebels against God, brings in this tremendous situation of, of lawlessness on the earth so that the Antichrist can come in and basically take over the rule of the earth for that very brief period of time at the end of this age. That's what's going on in our society today. So these aren't just random events. For sure, as believers, we see the corruption that's taking place in society and the moral degradation. and we, Our hearts should be broken over that. And as I uh, quoted in the previous podcast, Psalm 119, verse 136, that really should be our feeling today. Our eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. We should be brokenhearted about what's going on in society. It's so evil and so corrupt. But... It's all working toward a particular end. And what has really helped me in this regard is to look at the writings of Mr. G.H. Pember, who was a 19th century student of biblical prophecy, to see what he says about these matters. And regarding Daniel chapter 7.25, he says, The Antichrist will aim at an entire reconstruction of human society based upon principles which have long been working beneath the surface in a mystery of lawlessness. And that's when I really began to appreciate 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and the significance of that verse, that today what is going on in our society, what's causing the moral degradation, is a deliberate scheme of Satan. Again, not just random events. It's this mystery of lawlessness. We really need to appreciate that as the believers in Christ. Then we begin to understand what's going on in our society. When we see homosexuality being normalized, and not just normalized, but even literally paraded in the streets. And people say this is a wonderful thing. I mean, you've never had that type of thing before, not in Western civilization. I think in the ancient world, 
some ancient civilizations, it was pretty widespread. But in Western civilizations, you've never seen anything like that. Uh, to the point where now they they want to say these homosexuals can be married. When you see the uh, refusal to punish lawbreakers and saying, well, they, they're just... Uh, expressing their frustration over, over inequality and injustice, that type of thing. When you see the attacks on the Bible and on, and on the worship of the Lord and the hostility towards Christians and, and Jews that we're seeing in society today, all of this relates to the working of the mystery of lawlessness, which is preparing mankind for its final apostasy against God to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist and it's reached a point anymore where I, I'm ashamed to ask God to bless the United States of America. God cannot bless a country that is so given now to wickedness and sinfulness and these evil things and promoting them to the rest of the world. To my knowledge, from my observation, America is more degraded now than much of the rest of the world, even than much of Europe. In terms of the sexual corruption, the promotion of homosexuality, it's more advanced here in America than it is even in Europe, and that's saying something. And certainly in other parts of the world are not nearly so degraded as America has become. And so God's not going to bless a nation like that that wants to export this kind of corruption and this kind of sinfulness to other parts of the world. And that's why you see America's position in the world being degraded. God will not bless a nation like that. In part one of this two-part series, we spent a lot of time talking about the basic laws that God has established in Genesis 1 to 11 as the basis for having a healthy society on the earth. And we referred to Mr. Pember's comment that wherever these laws are rejected, there is rebellion against the Creator. That's what we're seeing in America today. And as a result of that rebellion, we're also seeing God's judgment on this nation. That's why people are so much at each other's throat. There's no harmony it seems anymore. Nothing is solid. Nothing is stable. Everything's corrupt. It's because we've rejected these basic laws and we're already experiencing God's judgment on this nation. And it seems to me this is what Isaiah chapter 24 verses 4 through 6 is saying. Here the prophet Isaiah says, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth also is defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, in other words, the basic laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. That shows us the principle that when we break the everlasting covenant, these basic laws that God has established for a healthy society, that is always going to bring in God's judgment. And that's what we're seeing in the United States of America today, why so much in our society seems to be in a state of collapse. So my prayer is not anymore, God bless America, but it is, God, have, oh Lord, have mercy upon this country. For sure, I, I do pray very much that the Lord's word would go forth that he would revive his people, turn his people back to his word, back to his truth in a much, much more serious way. Now, as I said in the previous program, that's the only hope for this country. I don't put my hope in politics. As I'm saying all this, my hope is not that, you know, you're going to vote Republican and you're going to 
you know, stand for conservative values. I hope there's a, you know, conservatives do well. I'd like to see conservative policies put in place. Again, you can listen to the previous podcast, what I said about that. But that's not our hope. It's not my hope. My hope is that God's word would go forth again in this country. And so many of his believers would turn to him in so much more serious a way. So many unbelievers would have their eyes opened to turn to the Lord, to turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. That's our hope. Praise the Lord. You know, my prayer for this country is along the lines of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. It's really so. We need to see a revival of the Lord's work in this country. And if you're a believer in Christ, that's what you need to be praying for. That's what you need to be praying for every day. Lord, revive your work in this country. But then that verse goes on. And Habakkuk prays, In the midst of the years, make your work known. In wrath, remember mercy. To a large extent, God's judgment is already upon this country because of the fact that we have forsaken him to the extent that we have. But as he judges, we can't turn back God's judgment. He's going to judge what he's going to judge. But what we can ask God to do is that as he judges, in his wrath, he would still remember to be merciful. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, Lincoln even quotes this verse, refers to this verse. In his Thanksgiving address of 1863, he talks about the blessing this country has received. And he says, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. That's from his his, uh, Thanksgiving proclamation, rather, of 1863. But that's the way we can pray for this country today. I don't think we can ask the Lord to bless this country at this point. But we can say, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Having said that, I want to make it clear, I don't necessarily believe that lawlessness has to triumph in this country. I think, I don't know, perhaps many Christians do believe that because the Bible shows us that at at the end of this age, the Antichrist will rise up and pretty much reign over the whole earth. But there is a verse in the book of Revelation that indicates America at that time may still serve as a refuge for God's people. That's Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. And I won't get into that too much here, but I'll just point it out. That verse says, it's talking about uh, the dragon persecuting, the dragon, of course, being Satan, persecuting this woman who signifies God's people on the earth at that time. And it says, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. That verse may be referring to to the United States, because, of course, the eagle is our national symbol, and the two wings of the great eagle may refer to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So that's a very plausible interpretation of that verse. Hard to say. Is it really referring to America there? Well, as I say, yeah, hard to say, but it may very well be referring to America, which could indicate that America will be somewhat recovered so that it can continue to serve as a refuge for God's people, as it always has been. 
And we can pray to that end, Lord, for your interest in this country, preserve this country from the evil and from the wickedness that's being promoted in these days. Now, I'm not going to, as I say, say too much more about that verse now, but it probably do a short cast on that in the future because there's a lot to unpack there in that brief statement. Very important. But just so you know where I'm coming from, no, I don't think that it's necessarily the case that lawlessness is going to triumph in this country. It certainly looks very, very bleak right now. But, saints, we have a living God and we have his holy, unchangeable word. And if we really are before the Lord and if we stand as believers in Christ, really stand on his word, we don't know what the Lord will do. We need to have faith the Lord can really act for his sake in this country and we need to pray based on that faith for him to move again in this country, to pour out his spirit in a way that would turn so many people to himself. Praise the Lord for that. So as I spend a good deal of the previous program emphasizing, the primary force that Satan is using today to promote lawlessness in our country and around the world is leftism in both its social and political forms. That's how the mystery of lawlessness is really being spread. And we spend a good deal of time considering that in the previous program, showing how leftism directly opposes all of the basic foundational laws that God has established for having a healthy society on the earth. And as I said, in this program, I want to spend a good deal of time considering why that is. Why does leftism have such an inherent hostility to God and to his law? It's just something about leftism that just hates God and it's against his law for a healthy society. Why is that? Why, why is it that it has this innate hatred? Well, in this regard, again, I was very much helped by a key statement that Mr. Pember makes. And I'll just quote that very briefly, and then we'll spend some time really considering that. At one point in his writings, he says, France, by the revolution of 1789, began to spread the principles of that anarchy out of which Antichrist will arise. And that's such a key statement. Let me quote that again. France, by the revolution of 1789, began to spread the principles of that anarchy out of which Antichrist will arise. And why is that such a key statement? Is because we need to understand that the left in America today and all leftist movements worldwide trace their origins back to the French Revolution philosophically speaking, and before that to the French Enlightenment that was a catalyst for the French Revolution. But in particular, leftism in America doesn't go back to the American Revolution. They do not share the principles upon which this country was founded. They share the principles of the French Revolution. And so we are going to be getting into some history and some political philosophy in the remainder of this program, and I don't want to put myself forward as an expert on any of this, but it's pretty basic, uh, the things that we'll be covering. So, I, And it's, it's important for us to understand these matters, to really see what's going on in society. Even before I became a Christian, uh, I had a recognition of the relationship between the left in America and leftism worldwide. And that was because you could see, and you know, this was around 1980, it was obvious that the left in America was much more sympathetic 
to the Soviet Union in the Cold War than it was to the United States. It was just obvious. They were always faulting America. They were always condemning America for defending itself. They justified the Soviet Union. They promoted this huge nuclear freeze movement in the 1980s that when Reagan was trying to build up America, a nuclear buildup, which eventually led to the demise of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, they strongly opposed that buildup. And they did everything they could, basically to undermine America in this conflict with its mortal enemy at that time, the Soviet Union. And I re- was really wondering why that was. So I looked into these matters of the, of the, the relationship between the left in this country and communism. And in that regard, I was especially helped by a very important book of 20th century political philosophy called Suicide of the West by James Burnham. Now, it's interesting. He was a former Trotskyite, and I believe he even knew Trotsky himself. Uh, But in the 30s or 40s or so, he eventually uh, had a revolution in his own thinking, and he became quite an important conservative thinker in the middle part of the 20th century. And so he wrote this book, Suicide of the West, kind of as a study of what he called liberalism at that time. And for the most part, it was liberalism, as distinct from leftism. But the principles still apply, even more so, when you are talking about leftism. And he made this statement uh, that I've remembered ever since I first read it. He said, The liberal arm cannot strike with consistent firmness against communism without dimly sensing that in so doing, it is somehow wounding itself. And the reason why he said that is because communism and liberalism, today we would say leftism, they all are branches off the same tree. They all go back to the same root, which is the root of the French Revolution and before that, the Enlightenment. So I understood that just as a matter of political philosophy in the early 1980s. I spent, as I say, some time considering that. But when I read that statement by Mr. Pember, that's when I began to understand not just the political aspect of the conflict, but the spiritual aspect of what was going on here. That it wasn't just a political movement. It was something Satan was using in the spiritual realm to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. So I was very, very much helped by that statement. And Mr. Burnham was by no means the only one who had that kind of understanding regarding the nature of the left in America. It's a fairly common insight. And uh, this is a quote I pulled down from Wikipedia. Now, I think this has been changed since I pulled it down, but it's basically still true. What they said, they're talking here about the French Revolution. Many future revolutionary movements were influenced by the French Revolution. And this, I should say, this is in their, was in their entry on the French Revolution. Many future revolutionary movements were influenced by the French Revolution. For example, its central phrases and cultural symbols, such as the Marseille, and liberty, fraternity, equality, became the clarion call for other major upheavals in modern history, including the Russian Revolution over a century later. And that's a reference, of course, to the communist Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, which established the Soviet Union in Russia. The French Revolution became the focal point for the development of most modern political ideologies, leading to the spread of liberalism, radicalism, nationalism, and secularism, among many others. Many historians regard the revolution as one of the most important events in human history. And it surely was, because that's what 
as this indicates, was the source of so many of the ideologies that we face today, including liberalism, and I would say leftism, socialism, all these ideologies really trace their origins back to the French Revolution. Well, why was that? You have to understand the difference, really, between the American Revolution and the French Revolution to understand why this is so important. These revolutions did take place at roughly the same time. The French Revolution began in 1789. The American Revolution had begun around 1775 or 1776 or so and concluded basically in 1781 with the Battle of Yorktown. So roughly they were at about the same time. But even though they both talked about rights, they really were two fundamentally different things. Because in America, what you had was a group of men who were fighting to defend what they believed were rights that were under attack by the mother country, by England. In France, what you had was an effort to totally remake society. That's what the French Revolution was all about, and that's why it's so totally different from the American Revolution. And ever since then, that is what leftists, with their various revolutions, have been trying to do. They have been trying to remake society. That's always the goal of a leftist social revolution. That's the goal of leftists in this country today. They want to remake society. But in the American Revolution, all the founders were saying, look, we're not trying to remake anything. We're just trying to hold on to the rights which we believe are under attack. So two very different revolutions. Now, there was another conservative political philosopher who was very important in the 20th century. His name was Russell Kirk. And he had this to say about the difference between these two revolutions. The same word, revolution, was coming to signify two very different phenomena. On the one hand, it meant a healthy return to old ways. On the other hand, it meant, with reference to what was happening in France, a violent destruction of the old order. The English Revolution and the French Revolution were contrary impulses. In short, Whig Revolution meant a recovery of what was being lost. Jacobin Revolution referring to the French Revolution, meant a destruction of the fabric of society. Now, when Kirk refers to a Whig revolution here, he's actually talking about the Glorious Revolution in England in 1688, not to the American Revolution. But the same principle applies, that the American founders considered they were defending their rights. In contrast, in France, in the Jacobin Revolution, they wanted to totally remake society, now, it is true in France, there were a lot of very legitimate grievances that the people had with the monarchy and with the nobility and with the Roman church that was doing so much to oppress them. So there were a lot of real injustices there that needed to be addressed. But instead of just addressing those injustices, they wanted to totally remake society in every aspect. And that is the nature of a leftist revolution, to totally remake society. And it goes back to what we've uh, quoted from Mr. Pember earlier, that when the Antichrist comes, he will aim at an entire reconstruction of human society based on principles that have long been working beneath the surface in a mystery of lawlessness. So do you see now how leftism really matches up with the mystery of lawlessness to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist? Because they have this same mindset that society needs to be totally revolutionized to bring in this utopia on the earth. And that's what gives Satan such a way to work on the left to cause mankind's apostasy from God.
Now, I think before we go to the break, this is the point to read a couple of statements about the satanic influence on the left from two very different sources. The first one is, again, it's a quote from Mr. Pember. Now, this is from his most well-known book. It's called Earth's Earliest Ages. If you have the Kriegel edition of that, it's on page 195. He's talking about the spread of spiritualism, this evil spiritualistic belief in England during his time. We might call that the New Age movement here in the United States today. But one of the groups that was promoting the spread of spiritualism was called the Psychological Press Association. So let me just read what he says about that, and then I'll have to explain it a little bit. Again, this is in 1875. A recent catalog of the Psychological Press Association, which owns one of the three or four shops established in London for the dissemination of spiritualistic books, presents a list of some four or five hundred works among which may be found vigorous attacks upon the Christian faith from almost every conceivable quarter. The greatest number of assailants seem, however, to be either Buddhists or agnostics. Now listen to what he says here. Politics, but only those of the party to which all communicating spirits appear to be attached, are also admitted, for the descriptive title of the catalog includes liberal and reform subjects. So he's saying here that all communicating spirits, namely the demonic influences, attach themselves to the liberal party. He says it almost as an aside, but that's his meaning. And at that time, that was very much the party of the left in England. So here, Mr. Pember, who is quite an authority on prophetic subjects, is saying that the demons always work with the party of the left. That was in his time. There's no reason to believe it would be any different today. They're using the party of the left because the door is so open there to promote lawlessness in society. That's why they work with the party of the left. Okay, that's one comment. But as I said, I have another comment from a very different source. And this is much more modern. This is from a book that came out in 1971, by a man named Saul Alinsky. And he was one of the central, you could say, pivotal figures of leftist activism in the 20th century. He had a huge influence on Barack Obama. Mr. Obama really got his start working in Mr. Alinsky's organizations. Uh, Hillary Clinton knew Mr. Alinsky personally and seems to have considered going to work for him in his organizations after graduating from college. Eventually, she decided not to. But she did know him. Uh, and many other left-wing activists have been influenced by Mr. Olinsky's writings and his methods. So in 1971, he published his most important, most influential book. It's called Rules for Radicals. And he makes a very revealing statement at the beginning of that book that everyone who is involved with leftism needs to consider very, very soberly and very seriously. Now, this is a pretty well-known statement. Some have said it's a dedication to Satan. Some have been offended. They say, no, that's not quite true. It's not a dedication. But at the very least, you have to say it's an appreciation of Satan. Listen here to what Mr. Olinsky has to say. This isn't coming from the right. This is coming from one of the central figures of the American left. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, 
the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Lucifer. So here he's appreciating Satan as the very first radical, the first one to rebel against the establishment, as he says, to gain his own kingdom. He's saying, if you take the way of leftist radicalism that I'm showing you in this book, you're following in the way of Satan. And again, that's the words from Mr. Olinsky. That's not someone from the right. That is the one who is telling people how to do this. And I'm just going to, I'll just quote myself after I refer to this statement in my book. Here, a central figure of leftist activism, at the very beginning of his most influential book, openly credits Satan as an inspiration for his evil work in our society today. This book has had a huge impact in leading many young people into careers of left-wing activism. Yet those who have been inspired by Mr. Alinsky or who use his methods to carry out a social revolution should be very seriously warned by his statement of a simple fact. They are indeed following in the way of Satan. So again, I would stress to all the young people who are tempted to take this way, you can see why if you get caught up with leftism, it is so hard to go on with the Lord in a healthy way because that leftism is the way of Satan. How can you follow Satan and at the same time try to go on with the Lord? Very, very hard. And again, that's a big reason why I had some feeling to put out the book and to uh, do these podcasts on this whole matter because I do see so many people who so many believers in Christ and many young people being deceived by the false appearance of leftism. Again, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Satan himself transfigures himself into an angel of light. And that is exactly what leftism does, pretending to be so good and caring about social justice and peace and welfare and equality, harmony in the environment. In the reality, it's just like the tree of knowledge. It appears to be one thing, so good. In the end, it's so utterly destructive. That is the nature of leftism today. And I strongly urge anyone who's tempted to be involved with it not to be involved, not to get caught up in that evil uh, evil system. It's interesting to note that a good deal of modern leftism comes out of Christianity. It comes out of this good heart to want to help people. And in the latter part of the 19th century, when a lot of the Christian churches, especially the mainline denominations, began to give up their faith in Christ, they turned to helping people. They wanted to do a lot of social work. Eventually, that became the social gospel. They completely lost sight of Christ. And in a very real sense, their social activism today has replaced their religious faith. It's kind of, it's kind of a new religious faith that they have. So Pember has a very insightful comment about this. And again, he's writing in 1909. So he saw this happening, and he said this, They begin to see Christ more and more as a mere socialistic leader, anxious only to reform the abuses and alleviate the suffering of the present world and to distribute the good things to the many. But this is just what the Antichrist will profess to be. Really something. When Antichrist comes, he's not going to present himself immediately as this evil ruler. He's going to be the one who says, I can solve your problems. I can get the whole world situation figured out. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3 tells us, 
When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them, just as birth pangs to a woman with child, and they shall by no means escape. And the Apostle Paul there is talking about the end times. So the Antichrist is going to convince people he's given them peace and security. Of course, these are two major left-wing values today, peace and security. That's what they're always telling people and encouraging people to seek after. And again, they don't realize when they're doing that, they're helping to prepare the way for the Antichrist. But as I say, a lot of this comes out of a good heart, this desire to help people. And it's not bad, of course, to want to help people. That's a good thing. But we have to be careful when we start looking in that direction that we don't lose sight of Christ and of his purpose to establish his kingdom on the earth. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Welcome back. Now, before going on, I want to mention my book again on this topic. It's called Lawlessness, the Left, and the Antichrist, and I'll link to that in the program notes below. And just about everything that I'm covering in these episodes is taken from that book. All the quotes that I mentioned just about are in that book. And as I said in the previous program, if you want to get an idea of what the book is about, you can download the preface and introduction from my website in PDF format. And I'll link to that also in the program notes below. And if that doesn't work, you can go to my website, thechristianfaith.org, click on the Writings tab and the Books tab underneath that, scroll down to Lawlessness, the Left and the Antichrist, and uh, click on that page and then scroll down a little bit and the download link is right there. I thought I would begin this part of the program by continuing to consider Mr. Olinsky and his comment, this time using a more recent publication. This is a very important little booklet by David Horowitz. It's called Barack Obama's Rules for Revolution, the Olinsky Model. And he says this regarding Olinsky's philosophy. Quote, In his writing, the 18th Brumaire, Marx himself summed up the radical's passion by invoking a comment of Goethe's Metaphysophiles. Quote, everything that exists deserves to perish. End quote. The essence of what it means to be a radical is thus summed up in Alinsky's praise for Satan, to be willing to destroy the values, structures, and institutions that sustain the society in which we live. A little later he goes on, Alinsky's tribute to Satan as the first radical is further instructive because it reminds us that the radical illusion is an ancient one and has not changed through the millennia. Recall how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to destroy their paradise. If you will rebel against God's command, then you shall be as gods. This is the radical hubris. We can create a new world. Through our political power, we can make a new race of men and women who will live in harmony and peace and according to the principles of social justice. We can be as gods. And then he adds a very trenchant comment. And let us not forget 
that the kingdom, the first radical, quote, one, as Zelensky so thoughtlessly puts it, was hell. Really so. Typical of radicals not to notice the ruin they leave behind. Then he goes on and he talks about the result of the revolutions that the radical leftists have had through the centuries, beginning with the French Revolution. One kind of hell or another is what radicalism has in fact achieved since the beginning of the modern age, when it conducted the first modern genocide during the French Revolution. And remember what Pember said about the French Revolution. That was the genesis of the spreading of the principles of anarchy that are going to pave the way for the coming of the Antichrist. I'll start over. One kind of hell or another is what radicalism has in fact achieved since the beginning of the modern age when it conducted the first modern genocide during the French Revolution. The Jacobins who led the revolution changed the name of the cathedral, cathedral of Notre Dame to the Temple of Reason and then in the name of reason proceeded to slaughter every Catholic man, woman, and child in the Vendee region to purge religious superstition from the planet. These leaders of the French Revolution thought they were so enlightened and so reasonable and so rational in how they were going to create this utopia on earth, and they end up slaughtering so many people. There was a very prominent contemporary critic of the French Revolution, Edmund Burke. He's been called the father of modern conservatism. He was a big supporter of the American Revolution, but a big opponent of the French Revolution because he knew these were two very, very different things. And he realized because the French Revolution rejected all the traditional moral pillars of society. He knew it was going to end in disaster. And he had a very striking comment about the French Revolution and about revolutionaries in general. When men play God, presently they behave like devils. It is really so. And that's what you've always seen as the result of leftist social revolutions throughout the world ever since then. So then Mr. Linsky goes on and he talks about the revolution in Soviet Russia. The Jacobin attempt to liquidate Catholics and their faith was the precursor of Lenin's destruction of 100,000 churches in the Soviet Union to purge Russia of reactionary ideas. The Temple of Reason was replicated by the Bolsheviks' creation of a people's church whose mission was to usher in the workers' paradise. This mission led to the murder not of 40,000, as in the Vendee, but 40 million before its merciful collapse, with progressives cheering its progress and mourning its demise. Very damning comments about the nature of modern leftism, because that's true. That, that's a true statement. They cheered its progress, they mourned its demise, this regime that slaughtered millions and millions and millions of its own people. Even today, to some extent, leftists are completely unwilling to really condemn communism as the evil force that it is there was a very prominent student of the Soviet Union and its history, Robert Conquest, who also had quite a sense of humor. And he, you know, produced this limerick, which is, it's sad, it's funny, but it's sad when you consider it. And he said, there was this great Marxist named Lenin who did two or three million men in. That's a lot to have done in. But where he did one in, that grand Marxist Stalin did ten in. So 
It's funny, but it's it's so tragic. It's just that is the history of the Soviet state in a nutshell. And so many leftist revolutions have just been so destructive all over the world ever since then. Again, you can see just a satanic, anti-humanitarian force. Uh, and it, but it presents itself even until today in America as being something so positive and so good. Its nature is totally different. Again, it's just exactly what you see in the tree of knowledge. It presents itself as something so pleasant to the eye and good for fruit, but it, it just results in utter destruction. Eventually, it consummates in the lake of fire. It's really so. That's just the nature of leftism today. Well, the French Revolution did not just happen. It was itself the product of historical and philosophical forces that had been working in France for some time. And specifically, it was the progeny, philosophically speaking, of the French Enlightenment that had taken place in the mid-18th century, led by men such as Voltaire and Rousseau, who became known as the Philosophes. And the Philosophes rejected belief in a personal God, and they rejected belief in divine revelation. They, They still believed in an impersonal God. They were, for the most part, deists. That means they believed in this creator God, but not a God who had anything to do with the world we live in today, much less a God who had given us the Bible. And for that reason, they felt you couldn't use the Bible as a guide for how to create a just society. You had to create that society based on human reason. And when the French revolutionaries later adopted their views and tried to create this so-called just society based on human reason, that became really the source of all the destruction and the mayhem and anarchy that resulted from that revolution. So the real result of Enlightenment philosophy was seen in France in the 18th century, but it wasn't until the 20th century that its full result was seen in the general history of mankind and the unbelievable destruction and the deaths of scores of millions of people that resulted from the implementation of the philosophy that was spawned during the French Enlightenment. One source I use in the book is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and their entry on the Enlightenment. And in that entry, there's this comment about the effect that Enlightenment philosophy produced during the French Revolution. Here's what they have to say. As the revolutionaries attempt to devise rational, secular institutions to put in place of those they have violently overthrown, eventually they have recourse to violence and terror in order to control and govern the people. The devolution of the French Revolution into the reign of terror is perceived by many as proving the emptiness and hypocrisy of Enlightenment reason. Amen to that. Now, one particular point I wanted to cover, as I mentioned in the previous episode, has to do with the Enlightenment view of man, because that is basically the leftist view of man until today. Because they rejected the biblical revelation concerning man, they had to reject what the Bible tells us about man in both its positive and its negative aspects. They couldn't believe anymore that mankind was something special to God. You just didn't have a basis for believing that anymore. If you don't believe in a personal God, how can you say mankind is special to God? You couldn't say that. He simply became another one of the creatures. So you lost that positive aspect that the Bible shows us about man, that he is so very special to God. And it's because they've rejected that revelation that so many people today just live these empty and meaningless lives they feel when, in fact, 
a human life is so meaningful and so valuable when it's connected to God's purpose. But that's been rejected by so many ever since the Enlightenment because they don't believe the Bible anymore. So how can you accept that view that mankind really is special among all of God's creatures? But that's rejecting the positive view of man in the Bible. As far as a negative view of man in the Bible, that he's fallen and corrupt and sinful, the philosophes also rejected that. They felt man is innately good. He's been corrupted by society. And now there were some different views on that, apparently, which and I wouldn't want to claim to be too familiar with that. But in brief, they simply did not accept that mankind is, is an innately fallen, sinful human being. And I do want to spend a little time on that because that's such an important characteristic of modern leftism, this rejection of the view that mankind has fallen. And again, I'll refer to the writings of Mr. Burnham because he really brings this out in a very good way. So Mr. Burnham says that the traditional view of human nature, the way he calls it, was indirectly attacked by some Renaissance thinkers. But then he goes on, he says, in the 18th century, Rousseau, Condorcet, Diderot, and other French philosophers of the Enlightenment made a frontal assault. They openly rejected the dogma of original sin and its attendant philosophical theory. In their rhetorical enthusiasm, they taught that man is innately good, not bad or corrupt, and held that man's potentialities are unlimited, that man, in other words, is perfectible in the full sense of being capable of achieving perfection. And he also says, The idea of progress had its purest expression during the 18th century Enlightenment, but it is present in one form or another, along with... A one or another degree of historical optimism, in other words, because man is not fallen, therefore we can create the good society on earth. It's present in one form or another, along with one or another degree of historical optimism, throughout the family history of liberalism, from Francis Bacon to René Descartes to Senator Hubert Humphrey. And he mentions Senator Humphrey because he published his book in the mid-1960s. So this is one of the factors that makes leftism so prone to destruction and so prone to totalitarianism because you completely reject the notion, on the one hand, that mankind is special. And on the other hand, you reject the notion that mankind is fallen. So that means that mankind is nothing more than a cog in your great machine to work out utopia on the earth. And since you believe you can create utopia on the earth, you'll do anything to create that utopia, including killing tens and hundreds of thousands, even millions of human beings who get in the way of that utopia. So again, that's been just a huge, huge factor in the destructiveness of leftism ever since the French Revolution. And I really appreciate Mr. Burnham's comment about the Enlightenment view of man. He just says this, Those who were inclined to dismiss religious doctrine as superstition might nevertheless have noted that it was borne out in full and terrible detail by the entire history of man, in every continent, climate, and region of the earth, in every society, at every stage of development, from primitive tribe to mighty empire, constructed by whatever race, black, brown, yellow, red, or white. A doctrine of human nature that paints a picture of what man might be, that is in direct contradiction to what he has always and everywhere been, may be a comfort to the spirit, but it is not to be taken very seriously as a scientific hypothesis. Really so. 
Now, because this is such an important point, I want to add another quote here from Mr. Burnham that shows that the founding fathers of our country did not share the Enlightenment view of man. There were a few prominent ones who did pretty much share that view. That would include Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. But for the most part, the founding fathers did not share that view, as Mr. Burnham makes clear. He says, Because the ideology of modern liberalism has become so powerful an influence in contemporary American thought and conduct, it is worth noting that the liberal doctrine of human nature is sharply at variance with the view that prevailed among the founding fathers of the Republic. At this critical point, they parted company with the European Enlightenment, from which, in other respects, they drew so many of their opinions. Most of them believed, with John Adams, that, quote, human passions are insatiable, that self-interest, private avidity, ambition, and avarice will exist in every state of society and under every form of government, and that reason, justice, and equity never had weight enough on the face of the earth to govern the councils of men, end quote. Very powerful statements there from Mr. Adams, of course, who was the second president. And a very clear statement from Mr. Burnham. So the founding fathers of this country did not believe in the perfectibility of human nature. They realized mankind has fallen. And to be honest, that's one reason, one very important reason why the Lord has blessed this country, because we come to him on the right basis, recognizing how we need his mercy to have a proper country. So thank the Lord that the founding fathers of this country had the clear view of mankind that they did. In my book, I have a chapter just considering the Enlightenment, and I call it The Fall All Over Again. And that's really what the Enlightenment was. Of course, in the original fall of man, we turned away from God in the Garden of Eden. In the Enlightenment, it seems to me, we just repeated that history all over again in a much stronger way. Of course, we fell in the first place by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a huge part of the Enlightenment was this focus on gaining more knowledge. Well, knowledge can be a very good thing. And there were many good things, to be sure, that came out of the Enlightenment in terms of improving the human condition. But fundamentally, what the Enlightenment did was to turn mankind away from God in a much more determined way. That mankind now is really going to seek to live his life on the earth fully apart from God, which in principle is, as I say, to repeat the fall all over again. But only this time we're doing it on a much, much vaster scale. Again, Pember has a very good quote about this. He says, Knowledge in this life is a gift that is fraught with peril. In our own days, the leaders of science are too often the leaders of infidelity, the despisers of God and of prayer. Except by special grace, man seems incapable of bearing the slightest weight of power upon his shoulders without losing his balance. And, of course, we should note the tree that we ate of that caused the fall in the first place was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the tree of good as opposed to the tree of evil. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil as opposed to the tree of life. The tree of life signifying dependence upon God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil signifying independence from God. And that's what we really partook of in a much fuller way in the Enlightenment, was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, so much good did come out of the Enlightenment. 
But as fallen human beings, we have no way to separate out the good and the evil. Wherever there's good developing and going forward, that evil is also going to be present and developing. And that's what we've seen ever since the time of the Enlightenment. That really was the beginning of mankind's final apostasy against God, this final rebellion of all of mankind against God and against his law. And that's been the ultimate result of the Enlightenment, which was the beginning of the final apostasy and of the French Revolution, which was the breaking out of the final apostasy in the leftism that we see doing so much to spread lawlessness and prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist all over the world today and ever since the time of the Enlightenment and French Revolution. And that basically concludes this study of leftism and how Satan is using it to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. But now I do want to say something to balance a little bit what I've been saying, a couple of points about what I've been saying. And the first is there's a difference between liberalism and leftism, which is this. Liberalism sees problems in society and they want to try to fix those problems. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. You have these policies. You know, I may disagree with you. I may agree with you on some points, disagree with you on others. But you're trying to deal with injustices. There are injustices in society that can be dealt with and should be dealt with. So that's, that's not the problem. The problem is when you want to use government to fundamentally transform society, that's when liberalism becomes leftism and that's when it becomes inherently destructive and inherently anti-God because they reject the notion that mankind has fallen and they're going to try to create utopia on the earth. So my concern is not with liberalism as such, it's with leftism. But there is a danger with liberalism, and, and which is this. Liberalism always tends toward leftism. There's a famous saying on the left, which is just this, there is no enemy to the left. There's always an attraction. If you're a leftist, there's always an attraction to move farther and farther to the left. That's the danger. But with liberalism itself, no, there's no problem with that, with, with wanting to try to deal with injustices in society. That's not what I've been concerned with here. My concern is with leftism and with the, this effort by the left to enact a social revolution in our society. That's what is preparing the way for the coming of the Antichrist. The second point I want to make is that we should be concerned about the injustices that we see in society and the things that are not right, because there's a lot that's not right. We live in a fallen world, and, and there's so much suffering and so many wrongs that need to be righted and so much unfairness and so much inequity, and we should have a lot of feeling about that as Christians. But we also have to recognize, because of the fallen nature of mankind, there's only so much that can be done today. The real solution is going to be God's establishing his kingdom on the earth. When the Lord comes back, that's when the inequality, the inequity, the injustice, all of that is going to be taken care of. And the Lord will establish his kingdom on the earth. And then there will be absolute righteousness and absolute equity on the earth. Praise the Lord for that. That's our real hope as Christians. So in all that I've been saying, I don't want to give the impression that we shouldn't have any feeling about what's going on today. And some of the problems that leftists talk about, they're real problems, they're real issues. You can't deny that. But you also have to realize that there's only so much we can do right now. Our real hope, again, is in the Lord's return. And so again, I would say, 
all that I've been speaking about leftism and, and the evils that it's doing in our society today, the answer is not to try to oppose leftism or to try to you know, raise up a conservative alternative to what they're doing. The answer is for us as believers to stand for the kingdom of God on the earth and to labor in the gospel, to labor to raise up the saints, to bring in God's kingdom so that the Lord can return and put an end to this evil age. Now, I feel I need to end this program with one more quote, which to me was very, very striking, and I found this as I was uh, researching my book. Of course, the real focus of this program is on Daniel chapter 7 and the Antichrist and the nature of the Antichrist and his evil work. So as I was working on this book, this phrase kept coming to mind, the will to power, which I knew was from Friedrich Nietzsche. And I knew basically where I read that. It was in a book by Paul Johnson called Modern Times, which is an excellent history of the 20th century. If you haven't read that, I really recommend that book to you, Modern Times by Paul Johnson. And I found where he refers to that statement in his book is at the very beginning of his book. And when I saw what Mr. Johnson said about it, it basically blew me away. Because even though he's a secular historian, what he says pretty much exactly matches the thesis of my book and my thought about how Satan is preparing the way for the rise of the Antichrist. And the fact that this statement is made by a secular historian just really confirmed my feeling about what's going on in the world today and how the way is being prepared for the rise of the Antichrist. So in his book, Mr. Johnson, he's talking about what he refers to as the great trio of German imaginative scholars, and that's Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Friedrich Nietzsche. And Mr. Johnson says, These were three men who offered explanations of human behavior in the 19th century and whose corpus of thought the post-1918 world inherited. Okay, and then he closes, uh, this is the first chapter, he closes the first chapter with this statement, which is quite striking. Here's what Mr. Johnson says. Marx described a world in which the central dynamic was economic interest. To Freud, the principal thrust was sexual. Both assumed that religion, the old impulse which moved men in masses, was a fantasy and always had been. Friedrich Nietzsche, the third of the trio, was also an atheist. But he saw God not as an invention, but as a casualty, and his demise as in some important sense an historical event, which would have dramatic consequences. He wrote in 1886, quote, The greatest event of recent times, that God is dead, that the belief in the Christian God is no longer tenable, is beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe. End quote. Among the advanced races, the decline and ultimately the collapse of the religious impulse would leave a huge vacuum. The history of modern times is in great part the history of how that vacuum had been filled. Nietzsche rightly perceived that the most likely candidate would be what he called the will to power which offered a far more comprehensive and in the end more plausible explanation of human behavior than either Marx or Freud. In place of religious belief, there would be secular ideology. Those who had once filled the ranks of the totalitarian clergy would become totalitarian politicians. And above all, the will to power would produce a new kind of messiah, 
uninhibited by any religious sanctions whatever, and with an unappeasable appetite for controlling mankind. The end of the old order with an unguided world adrift in a relativistic universe was a summons to such gangster statesmen to emerge. They were not slow to make their appearance. And he goes on in the following chapters to talk about the rise of some of these evil dictators, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, and later on Stalin and Mao Zedong, because the 20th century was a century that really saw the, the full fruition of the Enlightenment ideas and just resulted in, in unspeakable suffering and untold misery and, and the deaths of millions and millions of people all throughout the 20th century. But the striking point about Mr. Johnson's comment is that he's saying that the collapse of the religious impulse was what was going to open up the door for these new kind of messiahs. And, of course, he doesn't say it, but as I mentioned in the book, ultimately, it is that force which is going to bring forth the Antichrist himself. And that's what made me so impressed with that comment by Mr. Johnson. As I say, it just exactly follows the thesis of my book. So that will do it for this edition of the program. If you want a more in-depth look at this topic, again, I would encourage you to get my book, Lawlessness, the Left, and the Antichrist, and I will link to that again in the program notes. And even though we spent so much time in this program dealing with the political situation and some matters of political philosophy, the point is to remind the listeners that these events are, in fact, preparing the way for the coming of the Antichrist. And we need to be aware of that. And as the believers in Christ, as we see these events unfolding before our eyes, as they were prophesied in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it should make us much, much more serious in our seeking of Christ, our following of Christ, our serving of Christ, our standing for his kingdom, so he can have a way to bring an end to this present evil age. And to that end, may the Lord keep you in his way. Until next time, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.